Good morning, Horizon family. This is the, this is the 11 o'clock. We definitely need to be more awake than that. Good morning, you all. Uh, my name is Beth Guckenberger. If I haven't met you yet, I am part of the Horizon Extended family. I've been coming and participating in your community life since back when, when uh, Horizon was meeting in the church, in the school. And it's my joy if I, again, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to after the service. Uh, before I get started in the series that you all have been in, uh, discovering all these fun Easter eggs in the Old Testament, pointing to what it is that we'll celebrate next weekend, I wanted to take a moment publicly and thank your pastor. Uh, in 2020, for about eight months, I served as an interim senior pastor at another church here in Cincinnati. And I'd never been a pastor before. I don't think I'll probably ever be a pastor again. But for this limited time in the kind of heart of the COVID story, we were all doing things we were, un were unusual and were uncomfortable for us. And I said yes to that assignment. And uh, I, I talked, I called and talked to some of the pastor friends of mine to ask them, how in the world do you do this thing? And Chad was such an incredible support to me, answering my questions, checking in with me on Monday mornings, uh, helping me in, uh, just understand and navigate. Because inside of this work that we do in church, God has an enemy, and it's his, this enemy's desire to disrupt God's kids doing his work in his house. And I was trying to understand how to battle in that. And I began to write and during that time in 2020 a little bit about spiritual warfare. I was in a staff meeting maybe two weeks after I started, and I had an agenda because that's what leaders do. You walk into meetings with agendas. And I don't know, 15 minutes into that meeting, it was not unfolding the way it had in my mind before I got in the room. And I was feeling like, like, what is going on? So I just threw my agenda over on the side of the table and I said, hey, listen, I'm not the only person in the room with an agenda. Again, God has an enemy who's against his work and he has his own kind of agenda. Just let's try to use our imagination and imagine what kinds of things will we find on the agenda of an enemy of God. And one brave staff person said, um, I, I think he'd want us not to trust you. And I'm like, absolutely he wouldn't. So I got this little whiteboard out and I wrote agenda item number one, distrust. And then somebody else said, I, I, I mean, it was like week three of COVID. So he said, I think, I think an enemy would want us to be so afraid of what's happening right now in the world that we'd be selfish. I said, absolutely, and I wrote fear and self-centeredness on the board, and eventually we populated the board, and I said, here's what I know for sure to be true. There's no new tricks. Like, there's ever, any way you can arrange human sin, any way we can arrange anything, any, like, we've already seen everything out there. There's nothing new really under the sun. I've been reading my Bible for a while. There's a passage in Ephesians 6 that talks about the way we battle against a world we can't see as we put on something called our spiritual armor, which is important to do. And there's another passage just a couple books later than that that says this enemy, if we're trying to imagine him, he's like a lion and he's roaring around and he's trying to get us. The problem when I sew those two passages together is it sounds like I'm supposed to put on my armor and wait around for a lion to come get me. But if he only does the same things over and over again and I already know kind of what they are, then why does he, why does he get to come get me? I'd like to go get him first. Like, let's, let's be instead spiritually offensive instead of spiritually defensive. Instead of holding back the doors to our houses and our marriages and our churches and trying not to let the things that are dark and hard and evil come in, like, let's not do that. Let's just open the doors and storm them. 
and take back this kind of ground. There's power in this, that kind of posture, and that, some of that power is what we're going to talk about um, today. I want to teach you a word that I learned. It's okay if you don't even remember it. It's the idea I want you to remember more than there's no vocabulary test at the end of our time together. But the word is uh, goel. It's the Hebrew word for redeem. And when we hear the word redeem, it kind of sounds like a church word because we use it in churches. But redeem is not a church word. It's an archaeological term. It's actually a patriarchal term. And God uses it a lot. He says in the Bible that he's going to redeem us with a mighty arm, that we, we don't have to be fearful that he'll redeem us, that he's come to redeem his people. That's in Luke 1. Those, those verses come out of the books of Exodus and Isaiah and the book of Luke. And I want to um, help unpack what this patriarchal idea of redeem is because we're going to see it pop up in our New Testament. And I want us to understand how it was first originally used. So just... Just for the sake of illustration, uh, let's imagine that we are all one family and that our oldest brother, our fr- especially because he's not here to defend himself, our oldest brother is Chad, the pastor here. He, he's, and so in a patriarchal society, if we are all one family and the firstborn son is Chad, that means everything that we own, every single piece of pottery, goat and sheep, uh, cart, Everything that we own belongs to Chad. That's how it worked in a patriarchal society. But it also means that Chad has all the responsibility to take care of all of us. And so if my son, like, fell in love with a girl in another village and went over there to, like, check her out and then somehow got captured by somebody and needed to get brought back to our family house, it would be Chad's responsibility to go to wherever it is my son had found himself, pay whatever debt or ransom he needed to in order to bring that lost, lost son back to the father's house. In the act of bringing something that is lost into the father's house is the act of redeem. It went even as far as to items. Like if, if you know, somebody said to Chad, hey, could, could we buy some new pottery this year because mine's kind of looking chipped and out of style and Chad says this isn't a good year for us we can't do pottery new pottery this year and because I wanted that new pottery me or whoever it is that asked him for it would go and sell something that we do own on the black market to get the money we want so we could buy what it is that we really asked for the act of Chad going to buy back what we had sold on the black market even items bringing something lost back into the father's house that is the that is the act of redeem And so when God tells his people that he'll redeem them, what he's saying is, I'm going to go and find you wherever it is that you are, and I'll spend whatever resources I need to in order to bring you back to the Father's house. And he says he he can redeem us from our enemies. That's in Psalms. He says he can redeem us from the pit. He says he can redeem us from trouble. Because biblically, God is our, he's our father. And his house is is this family, this, this community of God. And He was busy rescuing people, rescuing children, and restoring them to the Father's house. He was busy redeeming them or goelling them. And then it teaches us in our Bibles in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, two different times, he calls Israel, the nation of Israel, his firstborn son. And he says, I'm going to give you all these resources. You're the firstborn. You can have all that you possibly need, but now you have a tremendous amount of responsibility 
Now you've got to go spend those resources that I'm giving you on behalf of people who are outside of the family so that you can bring them home, so you can bring them, introduce them back into the Father's house. That's why Israel had this incredible position of favor. And as God redeemed them, that, that their job was to go and partner with him. And sometimes in history they did this awesome job. And we have great stories about when they spent what they had been given sacrificially in order to put God and his ways on display and bring lost people home. And sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they used the things that God gave them for their very own gain, for their own selfish desires. So much so, and here comes our first Easter egg, so much so, God had put, put together this pattern that the firstborn pays the price of bringing lost people into the Father's house. And by the end of the Old Testament, the last book of our Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And, the, and God's kids by the book of Malachi had corrupted this idea of redemption. And priests who were supposed to represent God were accepting blemished lambs. And it was the whole thing was a hot mess. And he was, it was no longer representing God's heart in God, of, with God's kids in God's house and God's ways. So much so, eventually God had to have a second firstborn. And we read about him in John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved this world, this lost world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would be able to come into relationship with him. And so this, he sends us Jesus, and Jesus on earth is given, uh, the, the firstborn, he's given all the resources of the Father. He has all the, all the gifts, all the power, all the everything of the Father, but now he has all the responsibility to pay whatever price is required in order the ransom that is necessary in order to bring people who are outside of God's family into God's house. He lived and he died to pay that enormous debt for us, to redeem us. And he says um, he's going to prepare a place for us in his father's house and says, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'll go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. Because wherever I am, you can be there too. This is the, the sentiment behind the Father's house. And so he, as God redeems us, now he tells us this is our job. I'm going to give you all, this, all these resources. You now can have all the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You can have all access. You're, you're one of my kids in, all, in every way. In fact, Todd and I, we've adopted, we have a large family, if, you, if I haven't met you yet. And we adopted a 12-year-old boy a number of years ago. Um, he's 19 today. We adopted him in the summer. He had lived in a government orphanage of another country. And we brought him home in the summer before his seventh grade year. Then he went right away um, into King's Junior High to play seventh grade and to, to go to seventh grade. And he played soccer for that school. And I can remember um, like sometime in September of that year, he didn't have a cell phone. I was at work and I got a text from a number I didn't recognize. I could tell it was a kid who said, Tyler left his soccer shoes at home. Can you bring them to the school? And so I left work and I went home and his soccer shoes were by the door. And so I brought him up to the school. He had a game that day. So he was in like an athletic study hall. And I walked into the study hall to hand him his soccer shoes. And as soon as he saw me, he goes, it worked. And I said, what do you mean it worked? He's like, I told my team I couldn't play in the game tonight because I forgot my shoes. And they were like, don't you have a mom? And uh, he was like, yeah. And they're like, well, just ask her. She'll bring them. And he's like, I didn't know that's how this works. I'm like, oh, definitely this is how this works. We bring like lunch and homework and like this is how this works. 
he was a child of God and I mean a child of mine in all the ways that he was my child but he didn't understand all of the privileges and and rights that came with that kind of identity in the same way if we become Christ followers we have all this privilege all these rights that we come in with being one of God's kids but we're going to spend the rest of our life figuring that out and one of those privileges that we have is we can spend what it is that God's given us now as his kids our inheritance as his kids we get to spend that to bring more people who are outside of God's house into the house and and it's it's our mandate to look like God in that to do the best we can to represent him and I was trying to think of like a 2022 version of this because this the example I gave you a minute ago was like you know about pottery and people getting caught by like neighboring tribes like what's the 2022 version look like of me spending my resources to put God's ways on display to demonstrate what this looks like and Todd and I have a 21 year old son who's at Ohio State and um, our kids in part because of our large family participate in their post-secondary um, expenses they help they help make the money that we need for their college so this last summer our son Josh worked two jobs double shifts picked up all the opportunities side hustles he possibly could to make as much money as he could in the summertime in order for him to be able to have what he needed for the fall at, o at OSU and uh, I kind of knew like maybe the beginning of August about what he had earned that summer we, we were kind of keeping track of it a little bit but not closely but the day before he was to go back to school my husband logged onto his bank account to see what he was what he had been able to accumulate that summer and the balance was zero and we knew something was wrong because it should not have been zero and so we called Josh up into our room and said hey hey buddy what happened to all your money and uh, he had a face of shame I don't know if, if you've ever felt like you messed something up before and like you just don't want to talk about it but the day before somebody had well actually two days before somebody had emailed his Ohio State email address and, and offered for him to do some, a side job for them uh, when he was at school. And looking at it two days later and rereading those emails, the offer was too good to be true. And he should have probably realized that. But he was, he was in the middle of a hustle. And it felt like this is a great opportunity. I just have to walk these dogs. And he gave them their bank, his bank numbers for them to get everything set up. And he was the victim of a phishing scheme. Do you know that word? P-H-I-S-I-N-G, those internet scams. And they had taken all his money. And we eventually went to the police who said there was like literally nothing that we could do. And uh, he was just embarrassed that he had kind of fallen for it and didn't want to, didn't know how to talk to us about what that might mean for school. And it's just, it was just a hard moment. And we didn't know what to do. Like, by the way, just regular people trying to figure out life with our kids. I, we didn't know what to do. My husband's a good Cincinnati German. So, you know, he said something along the lines like, some lessons are hard to learn. You're going to eat a lot of ramen this year. And uh, uh, Josh left our room, and it didn't sit right with us. We knew that God was stirring us to do something to look more like him, but we weren't quite sure what to do. But by the next day, it had settled in our minds, and we called him back into our room and sat down with him. And uh, Todd said, here's the deal. I'm supposed to look to you, look like to you on earth the way our Heavenly Father looks like to us in heaven. Like, I'm supposed to put on display His way, His nature to you. And 
God gives me what I don't deserve. And so in my effort to try to model that for you, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And I'm going to pay you back what you've lost in this scam. And there was this like moment, this like holy moment where it dawned on him what was happening. And he said, Todd said to him, I want, I want you to remember what this feels like for the rest of your life. And now this is what you're supposed to do for others. Like we're supposed to not give people what they deserve, which we are so programmed to do so by our culture. And as Josh left the room, I said to Todd that the spiritual dividends that we are going to receive as a result of that act is worth far more than thousands of dollars that it cost us that day. Like this is what God understands. We're so, like we're supposed to literally put on display God's ways. This is what redeem looks like. And probably my favorite example in the Bible of a patriarch is Abraham, right? That's why we call him Father Abraham. He was a very godly patriarch. And it's one thing to do that kind of activity for someone inside your family that you already love. But what Abraham puts on display for us in scripture is he does that kind of activity for someone that's a complete stranger. In, in Genesis chapter 18, there's this story where he it says at the beginning of the chapter, he's sitting in the door of his tent. And we know he's sitting in the door of his tent because the chapter before he was circumcised. So he's just resting there for a minute. And then three strangers come up over a hill. And he sees from where he's sitting these three strangers, three people outside of God's community. And he gets up and he runs to them. And there's only three times in our whole Bible where old men run. They didn't do it in that culture. It was undignified for them. We have this story of Abraham running to these strangers. We have a story about two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And then we have a story of the father of the prodigal son who runs to him. Like these are, these are examples of God's behavior towards us. And Abraham ran to these strangers. We know in our Bible it was two angels and God, but he didn't know that. When he catches up with these three strangers, he yells to his wife, Sarah, who was still back in the tent. Hey, Sarah, get three sayas of flour. And saya is a measurement. So three sayas of flour are somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds of flour. So I don't know if any of you ever made bread from scratch, but guess how much bread you can make from 75 pounds of flour? Like a lot more than these three strangers could have ever eaten. And we know from reading that passage in its original language, when he said flour, it was the kind of flour that's the highest value, the, the, the best way you can possibly mill the flour, the wheat in order to get flour. So basically Sarah says to his, I mean, Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, I want you to go get way more than these people need of the very best that we possibly have. Why? Because I want to put on display God's ways. I want to show these three strangers how God's family works. This is why we're bringing in yellow bags for Ukraine to this church. We want to put on display for complete strangers that when we hear of somebody who is in need, we're going to do something about it. We're going to give them three sayas of flour, the best that we have. I was a missionary. I still am a missionary, but I lived out of the country for 15 years. And the first year that I lived um, in Mexico, I was visited by one of our board members, a Cincinnati businessman. Maybe some of you are familiar with him. His name was Mike Ellison. And uh, he, I mean, I'd been a missionary like six months when he came to visit. We were going to take him to see an orphanage that was five hours away from us, way up in the mountains. And you don't show up those kind of places empty-handed. So we were stopping at a grocery store so that we could get, like, fruits and vegetables and beans and rice and tortillas, things that we could take up to them. 
And there were three of us, and I divided a list into three, and I said, you know, you take your cart and go get fruits and vegetables, and you go get some beans and rice, and I'm going to go over here and get some bread and, and oil, and we'll meet together at the checkout in a few minutes. And when we got back to the checkout line, this, this Cincinnati businessman, Mike, he, he had a whole cart full of meat. And I said, Mike, we can't buy that meat. These people don't even have a refrigerator. Like, it, it won't. Even if we could, even if it stayed good until we got up there, they'll have no place to store it. It doesn't, we, we got to go take that back. And he said, they don't have a refrigerator. Well, we're in the wrong store. So we went over to an appliance store and I, we walked into this appliance store and the refrigerators, which uh, he was interested in purchasing for this orphanage, they started like in the kind of the economic end at one side of the aisle and then they they graduated by price to the other end of the aisle until you had like the bells and whistles on one side. And we just had a pickup truck and we didn't, we were, we were not thinking we were buying a refrigerator. So I was hanging out here in the economic choices and I was like, this one looks good. And Mike was over here in the really nice section looking at all the bells and whistles. And I said to him, we don't need to buy my, we don't need to buy one that big. Like, I don't even know what will fit in the truck. I, these, they're not even expecting it. Like they're going to just be happy. We're bringing them a refrigerator. Like, like, come on over here to my side. And he came over and he grabbed my shoulders and he said, hey, don't you ever forget this. When you give gifts on behalf of Jesus, you give brass ring, not baseline. And oh, for a young missionary to have learned that lesson so early, I am forever, ever grateful that he set me straight in that day that we don't give, when we go someplace representing Jesus, we don't give out scraps. That's the opposite of this principle of redeem. That's this, that is the opposite of what it is that Jesus offered to us. He didn't give us his scraps. He gave us his very self. He learned how to die to himself. And when Jesus came on earth and he was trying to teach people, there's another way of living and being, and it's actually completely different than the, what the world is telling you right now. He used parables as illustrations to teach stories. And he told us this parable in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took yeast and mixed it with 75 pounds of flour. He uses the exact same number. And every single Jew in the, in the hearing audience would have understood he was referencing this story with Abraham and Sarah. He was saying, the kingdom of heaven, which I came to bring, is, like, is, is just like Sarah and Abraham, who gave everything they had and more than they needed to put me and my ways on display. God had set this up a long time ago. Before Jesus came to earth, this is how my kids lay their life down. The last time I was here with you, I was telling you that we had brought into our home a foster daughter. Um, she came to live with us as a teenager. And this young woman, uh, she went away to college at the University of Kentucky and spent all the holidays and summers and weekends that she could um, with our family. Can, and then COVID hit her senior year of college. So she was home with us full time during um, COVID and then through graduation and today lives with us as she's in her graduate program here in Cincinnati. And uh, when she turned 21, I was asking her some questions about her birthday, a day I was not present for her. Just questions like how much did she weigh and what time was she born? And there were questions she didn't have the answers to. And I was pressing a little bit. And she was uncomfortable, and I knew she was uncomfortable, but I was still pressing a little bit. And my husband was in the room, but like not in the conversation, and he could feel her discomfort. And so he interrupted me, and he looked over at her. Her name is Dee Dee, and he said, Dee Dee, people make a big deal about where you're from. I don't think it matters where you're from. 
I think it matters where you belong. And you belong right here. And I told you that story when I was here last time because I was making a point that we need to create spaces of belonging for people who are outside of God's family so that they understand what it looks like in, in his house with his people. And uh, this last summer, the addendum to the story is this last summer, she asked us if we would be uh, willing to adopt her. And I'm like, she's 23. So I called a judge friend of mine. I'm like, get your robe on. We're coming after hours. Like, I don't care if it's not official, but I want, I want a memory with a gavel and I want a picture by your, like, by your thing. Like, we're going to do this. Like, I don't, whatever this needs to look like, we're going to do this. And he said, no, you can, you can legally adopt an adult here in Cincinnati. So we went... We hired the attorneys and went through the process, and that picture um, is a picture from us on the day that we were able to legally adopt her um, in Warren County this, this last December. And as we were walking into court, the attorney and the judge said to me, there's no real decorum in, in an adoption court, so like, don't worry about being formal, because like, our whole family was there, and like extended family and grandparents. And he's like, it's, I just want you to feel comfortable. Like, it's okay if you feel emotional. We probably won't be emotional because this is our job all day, every day, but like you can be emotional and it's okay. And I said, okay, great. I'm sure I'll be fine. And then we get to a part in this, in the uh, adoption proceedings where Todd and I had prepared a blessing that we had written to her. We just wanted a moment that felt sacred in that space to say, even though we have recognized you as a part of our family for a long time, this is, this is different. This is, this is something permanent. And he and I took turns reading, and then he got to a part where he said, with all the authority that I have as your father, I now depart upon you a blessing. And he started to read to her from number six, may the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious to you. And I heard this noise behind me. I look over, and the judge and the attorney crying. I was like, <laughs> it, and it was an amazing moment. But the truth of the matter is, it's just a shadow reflection to watch an orphan be adopted into an earthly family is moving, but it's moving because it's reflecting something much bigger, the reality of what happens when we get adopted into God's family. And there's another Easter egg with this patriarch I want to finish our time with. Abraham, just a few chapters before when he ran for those strangers, he's talking to God and he gets a lot of credit in the Bible for being someone who had a lot of faith. But the truth is God gave him faith that he gave back to him. And God said, I'm going to give you a couple of promises and to make sure you remember how the promises happen. I'm going to, I'm going to seal it with something that you will recognize. In the Middle East, what they were doing in those days were called blood path covenants. They still do them there today. Where you take a couple of animals and you split them apart. And then whoever's coveting walks between the split apart bloody animals, getting their feet bloody, signifying to everybody watching as witnesses, if I break my covenant, I'll pay the price with blood. And people do that over women and war and cattle and all kinds of things. So God made some promises to Abraham and told him to get some animals and split them apart. And if I was Abraham, I'd be thinking to myself, I know how I'm walking through the bloody path covenant, but like, I can't even see you. You're just a voice right now. And God in his mercy put Abraham to sleep because he knew God, Abraham and his descendants could never keep a perfect covenant with a perfect God. It just wouldn't work. And God walked through that blood path covenant on behalf of himself. He will keep his promises to Abraham or he'd pay his price with blood. And then he walked through that blood path covenant on behalf of Abraham and his descendants. If they break that covenant, that God would pay the price with blood. And the story we're celebrating next weekend started all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Pretty much ever since then, whoever was attending to the altar there would take blood from that day's sacrifice 
and throw it, splash it against the altar twice a day at 9 o'clock in the morning and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they would blow an instrument called a shofar, kind of like a trumpet. And it meant that wherever you were, when you heard the shofar go off, you just took a moment of remembrance that like, our people, we have a covenant with God and he's not going to break it. And it's just like, it was like a reminder. Fast forward to the week that Jesus died. And today is, uh, we're celebrating Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, Jesus was on top of the Mount of Olives on a donkey, something he prophesied he was going to do in the book of Zechariah. Another Easter egg there for us. And he goes down a hill and everybody was waving palm leaves and they were shouting some word, Hosanna. I think, I always thought Hosanna meant like hallelujah because we sing it in praise songs today. But Hosanna doesn't mean hallelujah. Hosanna actually is a bit of a war cry. And God's kids were finally like thinking to themselves, well, this Herod who says he's our king, he's not really a very good king. He's not doing, he's not our king. But we finally believe after three years of ministry, Jesus, you're our king. Hosanna. Like, Go take out that other guy. And Jesus is riding down on a donkey as God's kids were lined up, waving their palm branches, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. We don't know how Jesus walked into Jerusalem. There's, all, there's a big wall around it and lots of gates. One of the gates was called a sheep gate where the sheep would enter for their sacrifice three times a year. Lots of people believe that, that God's kids were lined up for Jesus to go into what was called the king's gate, because they were calling him the king. Herod would have never allowed Jesus to go through the king's gate. I don't think he went through that gate. There would have been some kind of revolt. We would have read about it in our Bibles. But we do know that because of the volume of sheep that were sacrificed during that Passover week, the blood would drain down, because Jerusalem was called a city on a hill, drain down into something called the Kidron Valley. As Jesus was going down that donkey, passing through the Kidron Valley, there would have been blood there on that ground. His feet would have drugged through that blood. That would have been like another Easter egg. Oh, yeah, this is how I got to this situation, because I had my blood, my feet go through a bloody path in Genesis chapter 15 with this matriarch. I'm, I'm going to go pay the price of blood, because they couldn't keep the promise with me. They couldn't keep a covenant. They were imperfect. And so I'm going to pay the price now with blood. I'm the firstborn. I have all the resources. I'm now going to spend whatever it costs, including my life, to pay the ransom for lost kids to come home to my dad's house. That sheep gate is really little. It's kind of a narrow little gate. I stood next to it when I was in Israel once, about five feet tall. I, later that day after I saw the sheep gate, I was at it down looking at some Greek and Roman ruins. They're super cool. And I was taking a bunch of pictures of them because like the Greek and Romans, they had amazing like amphitheaters and like, like coliseums and libraries and these giant roads where their giant chariots would pass each other. It was like amazing. And on my iPhone, I'm like taking pictures. And then I learned it was in those, that area where Jesus said these words, wide is the road that leads to destruction. If you want to be impressed with what man can do, it's great, but it's going to lead to your own destruction. And narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. That little tiny sheep gate. If we want to look like God's kids, we're going to have to walk through the sheep gate. We're going to have to be willing to give up sacrifice. Give three sayas of the finest flower we have to possibly complete strangers. So we can put God's ways on display. Five days after that, it was Good Friday. What we'll be celebrating online as a community this weekend. If you read Luke chapter 24, you can start, the Jewish day starts at sundown the night before, but we learn that Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning when that first shofar blew. That pattern that had been going on since Abraham, Father Abraham. 
And this doesn't make any sense, but if I was Jesus, I would have been hanging on that cross for like a couple of hours and thought to myself, good enough. This is terrible. I'm going to go ahead and die now. I'll resurrect in three days. I'll conquer sin and death. I'm not doing this any longer. But you know how long Jesus hung on the cross? Six hours. He hung on that cross until three o'clock in the afternoon when the shofar blew for the second time. And the reason he did so is because we serve a God who is literally always perfectly on time. And if I ever get upset with God, it's usually over like questions of timing. Things are happening faster than I want them to. Or things are not happening as fast as I'd like them to. But he has been telling a story that we can continue to discover and be in awe of since the book of Genesis. And whatever stories we have going on in our life, we can trust him with it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you spent the resources that were required to bring us out of the pit and away from our enemies and out of trouble. You have redeemed us and we're grateful for it. May we spend the rest of our life here on earth looking like you as best as we can, spending all that we have on those who are yet to be in our family. Would you remind us of these truths as we celebrate this upcoming Holy Week with you? And I pray this in your name, amen.